again. Father, we thank you for this morning and just for the, the beauty of the story that you're telling. We thank you for your faithfulness uh, through generations, Lord. We, we celebrate your steadiness, a steadfast love, self-giving love, Lord. We, we ask, Lord, that your word would stir us to worship that it would stir us to deeper obedience. That as we come to your table, as we come to your word, to this story that, that maybe we know really well or maybe that we, we don't know very well, that we pray that it would speak to us powerfully regardless of where we're coming from. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was thinking about it this week. and It was sometime in the last decade Maybe you remember, I don't know exactly when it was, but sometime in the last 10 years, YouTube gave us this whole new category of entertainment, the, the satisfying video, right? Satisfying content. And it's, it's like everywhere now. We're constantly being fed this stuff by, you know, whatever algorithm it is. There's always another satisfying video, whole channels on YouTube, dedicated to this idea of something just looking, appearing, feeling satisfying, right? And so there are people whose entire lives revolve around this idea of creating this content, right? So some guy is holding slime in his hand, and he's squeezing it slowly, and it's satisfying. Somebody's cutting a straight line, and it's, it's just satisfying. Somebody cleans a carpet, and you watch it go from, like, just filthy to perfectly clean, right? And it's satisfying. It's this idea. Like, it's everywhere. You're constantly seeing this on social media. You're constantly seeing it. It pops up. BuzzFeed's constantly throwing these things out all the time. Look how satisfying this is. I remember uh, <laughs> about a year ago, we, as a family, bought our first pressure washer. It's a momentous occasion, you know, when you buy a pressure washer. Uh, we're not quite to our, our pressure washer anniversary yet, but April was... Uh, she was so excited after she, she pressure washed our deck the first time. She looks at me, and she's got like this twinkle in her eye. And she says, I have to do the driveway. <laughs> it's just like, what? You, you want to do the Yes, I have to do the And she did it on her own volition. She's just like, I'm doing it. You can't stop me, right? Because there is this, like, this sort of like psychosomatic need we all feel for symmetry, for for order, for, for patterns, these kinds of things, right? And the story of Esther has that. It has order. It has a, a sense of this pattern that you're following, right? And the Hebrews told stories this way. It was important because, remember, these stories long before they were written down were being told, right? And so they had to remember them. And you've seen this in, in poetry. You've seen it in songwriting. In academia, they call it a, a chiastic structure, a chiasm. You don't have to remember that. Forget all of that. But that's what it's called, okay? And so it goes something like this. You've got A, B, and C, and then right in the middle is D, right? And then in, in reverse, perfect symmetry, C, B, and A, right? You rise in this tension, this conflict, to this climactic moment, and then there's the, the denouement, right? The, the, the resolution when everything is okay, right? And we got to that point last week. Esther 7, everything we've been waiting on finally happens. Haman finally gets what we have been hoping he would get. Mordecai and, and Esther's lives are, are saved, and, and Haman 
is impaled on the pole that he built for someone else. Right outside his front door, he wanted to see Mordecai killed, and instead, he is the one who's impaled, right? And I know that no modern person wants to say it out loud, but we all felt it. Like, I was hoping he was going to get impaled. You know, it's just like, I am so glad Haman got impaled. Nobody wants to say that out loud, but that's what we feel because it is so satisfying. That's how the story feels. Like, we get to that point, and he gets what he deserves, right? But where we're at today, in chapter 8, and as you go into chapter 9, there's this sense that as satisfying as it all is, there is still this haunting sense that though Haman is dead, the decree has still gone out. There is no stopping the decree. We, we talked about this a little bit last week. Jonathan referenced it. The idea is that a Persian king doesn't just take back what he says, right? A Persian king is, is a god in the eyes of his people, and to just undo what he has said would mean that he changed his mind or that he was wrong in some way, that he acted hastily. No, he could never accept such a thing, right? So he can't revoke that decree. You hear the same thing in the story of, of Daniel. It happens to him as well. The king is manipulated into issuing a decree, and there's nothing he can do to save it, to change it at all. And so there's like this, this sense that there, there's still danger for the people of God, right? Yeah, sure, I mean, Mordecai's been saved, but what about the rest of the Jewish people living in Persia whose lives are now on the line because this decree has gone out saying that any Persian can attack any Jewish person. Like, they're supposed to be eradicated, right? It's like a, one of those moments. You, you, you walk out of whatever you know, blockbuster movie you've just seen in the theater, and though you know the good guys have won you know, in this war movie or, or you know, you know, maybe it's like one of the Avengers movies, who knows, right? You walk out of there knowing, as unrealistic as what I just saw was, as much as it was just CGI and green screen and the whole thing, like, somehow, in real life, I feel good because of what just took place. It's all fake, but I feel so good. I feel so satisfied, right, as I leave the theater because the good guys won. And then, inevitably, you start to kind of, like, grapple with, you know, the reality of it all. You just, well, if said scenario was actually real, the good guys sure do leave a mess, right? Yes, they've won, but like they always seem to leave destruction and desolation in their wake. And like you don't ever see the, the part of the movie where like, they, what do they bring in, like cleanup crews? Like, like, like what happens here? How is this going to get better? What about all of the, the destruction? Chapter 8 and 9 are dealing with that component of the story, right? How God has been moving all along, not just to save Mordecai and Esther, but how God has been moving quietly to save not just them, but the whole of his people. He's been moving to preserve the life of his people. God has been quietly doing this. Remember, the book of Esther never mentions God's name, right? But quietly, subtly, God has been working throughout the whole situation to deliver not just these two individuals. God never just saves individuals. He's always working something far grander. He's saving the whole of his people, preserving the life of his whole people so that in doing so, he's preserving his good purposes in this world through them. They are the means by which God is going to bring about his good purposes for this world. And so as he preserves their lives, he's preserving his own purpose. And so Esther goes in, as Courtney's reading from chapter 8, and she begins to fall at the feet of the king all over again because she knows that nothing can undo this decree he is sent unless he creates a new decree, to counteract that decree, to, to undermine it in some sense. 
This decree that Haman schemed up has to be counteracted. And so the king creates a new decree. Now the Jewish people who are about to be attacked have the right to defend themselves. When someone comes and attacks them, they have this freedom to defend themselves. And if you read further into chapter 9, you find that's what they do. And they triumph over their enemies, right? The underdogs in this story are able to, to overcome those who attack them. It's not like they're fighting all of Persia, but those who want them gone, who attack them, they fight against. And as they win, it feels good, right? If you read that part of the story, you cannot help but feel satisfied in some sense. And, and the rest of the book is, is all focused on the idea of creating this celebration. They're going to create a celebration. We talked about this in the first week, Purim. Maybe you've heard of, of the Jewish holiday of, of Purim, but it's just pure joy, right? This reminder that God delivered them from the Persian Empire, a reminder of all that God has done. But even in that, even in all that joy, there is like a tension that they will live with for, for the rest of their, their history, right? They will spend their lives celebrating the way in which God delivered them from the Persian Empire while they live under the rule of another empire, right? So there's a, a tension in all of their joy. There's a pain still. There is something unsatisfying even in that. And there's something about this passage that does that. There are questions that I think we're supposed to ask when we get to the end of it. We're not just supposed to walk away and say, that felt good. It's good that he is dead. It's good that they won. There are these questions we're meant to ask, right? Because we are talking about, at the end of all of this, we're talking about 500 people who are dead now, just in the capital city of Persia. But because the fighting has gone on outside of Susa, throughout the empire of Persia, right? 75,000 people is what we're told are now dead, right? I mean, that doesn't sound like joy. That doesn't sound like a celebration. It sounds like a tragedy. All of these lives have been lost. Like, think about that, right? So there's a tension just in the story itself that we can sometimes ignore. And you can't help but think that many of the years they spend celebrating how God saved them from the Persian Empire, they're constantly reminded that they're just living under another empire, just one after the other. In chapter 9, we're told that they're given relief from their enemies, right? That's what we've been hoping for. They're given relief. I mean, if any people ever needed relief from their enemies, it's the Hebrews, the people of God. But if you know the story, whatever relief they get, it doesn't seem to last very long, right? And they're just supposed to keep celebrating year after year even while all of this is, is going on, right? It feels as if they've been delivered from their enemies into the hands of another enemy, right? From one empire into the hands of another. And we kind of have to ask these questions, like grapple with some of this. There's a beautiful aspect to the story, but there's something unsettling and unsatisfying about it all. And I think as we do that, right, as you ask some of these, these questions, as you grapple with the joy and the tension of what's happening in the story and in our story and in the whole picture of what God is doing throughout history, I think we begin to find that's the point, that that was what the story was always supposed to be, and that's what our story has always been, right? We're a people who are called to keep celebrating God's triumph and his goodness even when our circumstances suggest otherwise, right? We are a people 
who celebrate in anticipation of a greater triumph we know is still coming. This is the nature of the people of God, right? We celebrate because we know the work is unfinished. That doesn't bother us because we know what God begins, he inevitably finishes. We celebrate knowing this, right? Even in the tension, even those circumstances suggest otherwise, even as we have to grapple with this unsatisfying nature of our lives and of the story of the people of God, right? We recognize the work will be finished soon and he will finish it. But to get to that place, to get to the joy and the beauty of the story, I think you have to wade into the questions, into the, the unsatisfactory element of the story. So when Haman is impaled on this gallows that he himself commissioned to be built right outside his front door, like you can't help but feel, we talked about this, this sense of justice, right? Finally, somebody in the story gets what they deserve. And then you read further in our passage. Maybe you caught this. Haman's property is given to Esther and she gives it to Mordecai, right? I mean, is there anything more fitting, right? Now the very man he wanted dead, who he was seeking to wrongfully murder, now has everything that was his. Justice has been served, right? That's what we feel. But there, there is a, a tension even in the joy that you've got to grapple with, right? Is that actually justice? That's what we normally think of as justice. That's the way our brains function. When we think about justice, that's the way our modern criminal justice system functions. But is it actually justice that Haman has been impaled? Is that how we understand it? And, and we wrestle with this regularly because think about it. You, you see somebody who's sentenced for some terrible crime they've committed. It happens regularly. And I'm not talking about petty crimes. You know, maybe it's a murder. Maybe it's some kind of terrible abuse that's been done to a child. It's rape. Whatever it might be. And when they're sentenced, we feel some sense of, of joy, right? Some sense of, of like justice having been done, right? Finally, they got what they deserve. Yet we know that no sentence can actually undo the effects that that family feels that that community is feeling. There is no sentence that can heal or restore a group of people. It doesn't work that way. It's just retribution, right? It's just, in some sense, it's, it's, it's revenge. Somebody gets what they deserve for what they've done, but ultimately it can't undo anything. It's just retribution. And you see retribution a lot in the Old Testament. It's everywhere, okay? The Old Testament is full of it. And there are a lot of people who would look at the story of Esther and they would say, that, that's kind of what Esther's got a lot of, a lot of retribution. And then they'll make the next conclusion. Maybe that, is that the point? Right? And, and, and obviously a lot of people will start talking about Israel as like a nation state and all of these things. Right now, there is a, apparently a war that has begun this weekend. Like we think about these things and we think about how much these kinds of stories have shaped foreign policy and the way we understand all of this. And people say, well, I mean, the story kind of gives them the right to do this, right? They've been attacked, and so retribution only makes sense, right? Like, we, we end up going to that place inevitably. And then some people make the next step, which is that, well, that, that's kind of the nature of God, isn't it? That, that's who God is. God always punishes his enemies, so don't get on the wrong side of God. God always gets retribution, that's how God is. He's, he's kind of vindictive. He's vengeful. 
and that's there. Like, I mean, think Deuteronomy 32. Romans 12, Paul quotes it. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. He's saying to his people, you don't need to seek that. I am the one who will take care of retribution. And so the people of Israel, they do this over and over again. They fight against their enemies. They get retribution for the wrongs that have been done to them. You see it over and over again. And judges, you can't help but like, there's just this like line of heroes that arise because Israel is so broken. Samson, I think, is, is probably the most memorable because he just does it over and over again. These incredible feats and accomplishments, right? At one point, at his lowest point, really, He's chained to the pillars of the building, and he, he pulls down this entire building on the leaders of the Philistines. He crushes them and himself, right? It's this incredible triumph. Even in the tragedy of what's happening to him, there's this incredible triumph over the Philistines, right? But again, the tension is it's not like the Philistines disappear. They don't cease to be enemies of Israel. They're still there, right? Years later, David will become king. And David is fighting Philistines. That's how he kind of puts himself on the map, right? He defeats a giant Philistine named Goliath. We all know the story well. That day after he defeats them, the armies of the Philistines are defeated as well by Israel, right? They're just crushed. But it's not like the Philistines disappear. David spends the rest of his life fighting against the Philistines, right? Only for a while. Are they really victorious? And then they come back again and again, right? So the Old Testament is full of retribution. It's there over and over again. And some people say, well, that, that's what God is like. And maybe it's okay for us to be like that in some ways. But the problem is, as full of retribution as the Old Testament is, it reads almost like a cautionary tale, like a warning of the limits of retribution of how little retribution can actually do, right? If you read the Old Testament, it will leave you unsatisfied with retribution. It leaves you longing for something more than revenge. It leaves you longing for justice. We want justice. And very often, we associate justice and retribution when retribution is a, a sort of like one-dimensional view of justice. Justice doesn't just punish the way we see justice in Scripture, the way we, we understand God as just, it, it's not just that God punishes, God restores. Justice is, is not just retribution, it is restoration as well. So God does avenge and yet he restores, right? This is the nature of God and it's what makes him so different from any other God we've ever known. So the, the Philistines, if, if they're dead, if Haman is dead, if the enemies of the people of God in Persia are dead now. Does that, does that really change anything? That can't restore anything, right? Retaliation, retribution, revenge, it always means my enemy remains my enemy. At the end of the day, my enemy has children. At the end of the day, my, my enemy has friends. My enemy remains my enemy. And if your enemy is still your enemy, then you spend the rest of your life looking over your shoulder, wondering when they will come for you. That's the problem with it. This is the problem with, with simple retaliation, right? With simple retribution. Yeah, it feels good, but does it really heal anything? Can it restore anything or anyone, right? But if 
The justice of God is what I'm seeking. If that's what I'm really longing for, it means my enemy can become my sister. My enemy can become my brother. It undoes all of this. And we have to consider all of that. We have to think about it. Retribution can't reconcile my enemy to me or to God. It can't restore me or them. We just remain as we are. But if if God is just and his justice means I don't have to fight anymore, well, that's, that's where the joy is. That's where the goodness is. That's what we're really longing for. That's what the people of God are longing for because they've lived revenge. They've lived retribution, and they're longing for justice, something better. And you can kind of see this in the details of the story. The story is not reveling in revenge. It's not just like some gratuitously violent tale. It can appear like that on the surface, but then you look at the details of chapter 8, and you see that when they come and they ask for the king to to reverse this, this decree that he sent out, to create a new one, they don't ask that they could go on some great offensive against the Persian people. They say, allow us to be able to defend ourselves against those who are attacking us. It's a picture of defense. Not that they're just going to kill every person who comes their way, that they see, that they're going to prove themselves somehow, show their strength. It's not that. It's not a show of force. It's about defending themselves. And the king kind of takes it a step further. He says, any who attack you, you can defend yourselves against, and you can keep whatever plunder you gain in the process. You can keep their their land, their homes. You can keep their possessions as, as your own. But multiple times we're told, as you read, that they don't keep the plunder. They don't have any interest in it because the story is not about revenge. It's not about retribution. It's not about somebody getting what they deserve, right? It doesn't work as well when we see it that way. It's not about inflicting revenge on your enemy. In the story of Esther, in the story of Scripture, the people of God are are longing for something more than just retribution. It's restoration, it's healing, it's joy. That's what they're chasing after. That's what they're longing for. Not just revenge, someone getting what they deserve. But again, we all recognize that that obviously sounds good. Real justice, the justice of God sounds good, but apparently it's not, it's not coming anytime soon. God's justice feels slow to us sometimes. We've never laid eyes on it. We've never experienced the justice of God in that kind of way. Firsthand, what we see is one or the other, but, but never a God who's capable of avenging and restoring. We have never seen that. It always feels so distant from us. And so, in the meantime, if I can't have justice, retribution at least feels good, right? And this is the thing that makes us instinctively, intuitively, every time we are wronged, say, I want desperately for that person to suffer for what they've done for me, for what they've done to me, excuse me. We want retribution. We want these people to get what they deserve. We want to be vindicated, and we want them to be shown for what they really are. And if you look at the story, I mean, that's what Haman wants. Haman just wants a little bit of retribution, just like you and I. Mordecai has wronged him, okay? He spent his life working to get where he is, and now Mordecai, by not bowing to him, if you've been following along in the story, Mordecai refuses to bow to this man that everybody else in Persia knows they have to bow to. And when he does this, 
he's undermining the value, the perceived self-worth of this man, Haman, and he's, he's undermining his authority in the, the Persian hierarchy, right? It's a problem. Haman just wants a little retribution. Haman is not that different from you. He's not that different from me. He wants this thing, and I, I, I get it. Yes, Haman is a bit more extreme. None of you have ever, I don't think, uh, none of you have ever constructed a pole on which to impale your co- coworkers, you know, next to their desk or something like that. Like, that, that, that's not where we're at, right? Obviously, you're not like Haman in that way. But we do want a little bit of retribution. Like, how often does it happen? Someone offends us. Someone makes us feel small. Someone says those words in, in just that way that it bothers us, not just the rest of the day, but for the the rest of the month. It causes us to question a lot about ourselves, right? Mordecai has threatened him in this way, made him feel small. And it's the same sort of thing that happens to us on a weekly basis, over and over again. We're experiencing it. We get offended. And I think, honestly, the more we read it and the more we live our lives, I think we will find we readily can relate and identify with Haman. We want to relate to Mordecai. We want to relate to Esther. But I think we can readily relate to Haman if we're being honest. Haman is offended. He's hurt. He's undermined. His value is questioned. And so he creates a structure to deal with the problem. He creates a weapon, a machine that can deal with the issue. He constructs this structure to deal with Mordecai. And I was thinking about it as as Jonathan was talking last week. We're all constructing some grand structure with our lives. Like we have some grand vision for ourselves, right? Goals, dreams, vision for what we think our life should be. And we're hoping that by building our entire lives at the end of it all, or maybe in the middle of it all, if we're lucky lucky enough, right, we'll be able to show, look what I have built, and it will prove my worth. Everyone will see it, and they will recognize I am a good person, I'm a gifted person. I'm a successful person. I'm an impressive person. Whatever it is, I'm a better person than I once was. Whatever it might be, we're all constructing something, all built on these good intentions to show just how wonderful we are. But then there are all of these other things, you know, like the ulterior motives that are behind a lot of these things we want to do and we want other people to see us do. The deception, right? And it's subtle, right? Like all of the ways that we hide who we actually are and that we project this image that we want everyone to see of us. And we spend our lives doing this, constructing this image, this projection, this idea of who we are. We're building this structure over and over again to show our worth, to show that we're okay, to show that we're better. We create this standard. And this standard is one that we feel like we can live according to. We're biased to ourselves, right? We create a standard that we know that we can meet Others cannot so easily meet, though. They don't know the standard. It means I now have secured value for myself, and I've secured more value than them because they can't meet the standard in the same way. And we find that just like Haman, by the end of it all, we are impaled on our own standard, our own structure that we've been building. Our hypocrisy lands us on a cross of our own making. We spend our entire lives trying to show something that's true about ourselves that's all really ultimately flawed. It's really just a lie. It really can't hold up. It's less than. We find ourselves impaled on our own legacy, our own dreams. 
And the retribution that we think everybody else deserves for all of the wrongs that they've done to us or otherwise, it ultimately falls back on us. Like our lives end up accusing us, right? We find ourselves in the same sort of position. We begin to realize, like, our enemies need a restorer. Haman needs a healer. He needs someone to fix him. He is so deeply broken. He doesn't just need an avenger. He needs a healer and a restorer. He needs that kind of justice. But then I find, ultimately, I need that as well. We're all the same. And it's this justice. It's the only thing that can bring me hope. It's the only thing that can offer me lasting peace. It's the only thing that can bring me joy, right? The thing that I'm actually longing for. And by the time Jesus comes onto the scene in first century Judea, these people have been celebrating Purim for centuries at that point. They've been celebrating the defeat of one empire while they lived under the rule of another empire for a long time, retelling the story over and over again. And right about the time the Romans came around, an avenger sounded pretty good. And when Jesus shows up and people are claiming he's the Messiah, in their minds, that's what a Messiah can do for them. He's an avenger. This is what he can do. He can bring about the retribution that we're longing for. And when Jesus walks around saying things like, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword, they say. Maybe Jesus is being metaphorical and he's, he's talking about, you know, the way in which the kingdom is, is different than we thought it was. But maybe, maybe he's not being metaphorical. Maybe he's being real about it. Hopefully he's being real about it. Because in, in their minds and in our minds, very often, right? I mean, retribution is the way, okay? How else can, can the Romans be overcome? How else can we be saved aside from violence, right? Aside from God himself taking up the sword, right? That's the way this can change. But all along, if you know anything about Jesus, there's never really a point where it feels like Jesus is about to pick up a sword. The closest thing you get is when he picks up a whip and he goes into the temple, all the other details seem to suggest Jesus just isn't going to do it. He's not going to, to meet that expectation. Everything seems to inevitably be leading toward Jesus' death. There are all these people who want to, to falsely accuse him. They want to bring charges against him. They're plotting against him so that he can be gone, so they can be rid of him. Not only that, Jesus himself won't stop talking about it. Jesus himself keeps bringing it up over and over again that he's going to die. That's the point, it seems, right? Nothing can stop it, and Jesus is making clear he's not going to. And so when his own countrymen, his own people, Pharisees, the, the high priests, the teachers, the scribes, all of these people that he's had this conflict with, when they all accuse Jesus and bring him before the Roman authorities, the Romans condemn him. His own people condemn him. Jesus finds himself in the same position that Mordecai is in, right? There's this irrevocable decree hanging over his head. Nothing can be done to stop it, and he's not going to stop it. And as you read that, if, if you're like the, the person who's reading the gospel for the first time, hearing it the first time, you're hoping, if you know the rest of the story, that Jesus will be just like Mordecai, that someone will step in at the last minute and say, stop this. This cannot happen. He's innocent. You don't, you don't kill an innocent man. You can't do that. That's what we're hoping for. 
that Jesus will be saved from all of this. And instead, Jesus is the person more than anybody else who refuses it. He won't say a word. Jesus embraces it. Though his enemies deserve this punishment, those who are falsely accusing him, they're the ones who actually deserve the punishment. They're the ones who deserve retribution. That's the only thing that seems right in the scenario that's playing out in the Gospels. And yet, the story's been trying to show us all along. The people of God are longing for more than revenge. And Jesus is seeking more than revenge against his enemies. Jesus wants more than revenge. Jesus is seeking restoration. Jesus' mission is, is not getting back at whatever people have afflicted the people of God. No, it's, it's restoration, right? And it is through this injustice that Jesus suffers that he brings us real and lasting justice. It's the way that he chooses to do it. And when Jesus is forced to take up a cross, he's taking up a cross, not just that the Romans are forcing on him. The thing we have to come to grips with is Jesus is taking up that cross which I have spent my entire life constructing. That standard, that thing that, that shows my value and my worth, right? That attempt to make myself better, that need to show everyone who I really am, that need to rise above everything else and everyone else, that need to prove something about myself. Jesus is taking that up, that thing that my hypocrisy lands me on, my own cross. Jesus is taking that up. Jesus is, is choosing to be impaled upon the gallows I have spent my life building with good intentions. Jesus stands under the irrevocable decree in my place. That's the picture that we're being given. And there's something about it that just leaves us so deeply unsatisfied. Like, I think people who are non-believing, like, like, it just feels so problematic that Jesus is just okay with this. He's just going along with this. He's going to let this happen to him. I don't want to be a part of that. The Romans didn't know what to think of it when Christians kept telling this story, celebrating a crucified God. They could not make sense of it. Why would you let this happen to yourself? Jesus is gladly crucified. This irrevocable decree is hanging over his head just like Mordecai, but Jesus knows that another decree is coming. There's this beautiful element in the story, and we haven't talked a lot about it in the series. If you remember, the first decree is issued because of what Haman does. He schemes up this decree. He manipulates the king to doing this. And when Esther gets the news that the Jewish people are now under threat, she says, we're going to take three days three days. We're going to fast and mourn and, and pray, and I want you to fast with me. So there's three days between the first decree and that moment when she goes and seeks the second decree. There's this beautiful sort of reality, like just when we think Jesus is finished, just when we think there, there's no hope left for the one we thought was the Messiah, right? Three days later, th later there's this, this this other decree altogether. The resurrection is God's final definitive word. 
The resurrection is where God reveals that Jesus is more than just retribution. He's restoration. It's God's final and complete decree against every threat, against the people of God, against every enemy, Satan or otherwise, that would stand. The cross and the resurrection are retribution and and restoration. In the cross, Jesus is revealing the real and true justice of God. There is something so beautiful about what he's doing, and he does it in a way that we would never have imagined. It's not what we were expecting. Jesus intends to be more than temporary relief from our enemies. Jesus intends to be more than revenge. Jesus intends to be more than a temporary fix to our problems, more than a therapeutic fix to our needs at the moment, more than just a way to make us feel better about our circumstances. Jesus is lasting peace. That's what he's after. And that's what his justice can bring us. It just doesn't look like we imagined. Jesus is what allows us to celebrate the triumph of what God has done as we wait on that to be finished. Jesus is what allows us to celebrate even when our circumstances suggest otherwise. While the work remains unfinished, we're still able to celebrate because we know what Paul is saying is true in Philippians 1. That he who began this good work will be faithful to complete it. We celebrate it because my purpose is not to construct some grand thing, some great legacy. My purpose is not to finish the work. Jesus' purpose is to finish the work, and I just get to enjoy it. I get to experience it as he's offering it to me instead. And as we come to the table, we're reminding ourselves, as the band comes and we step into this moment of communion, there's this opportunity for us to come to the bread and the cup, the body and blood of Jesus, and to walk away not feeling that sense of, of being unsatisfied. We walk away from this table every time filled, fully satisfied, fully satiated. We walk away with this sense of joy and hope, even when our circumstances may suggest otherwise. That's the beauty of the table. And so that's what we want to invite you into in these moments. Regardless of of where you find yourself, um, we invite you to come celebrate the unfinished work, because we know that it will soon be finished. That's what's happening in the table. Come and celebrate the work of Jesus on the cross. Come and celebrate the work of Jesus in establishing this kingdom and bringing it to its full consummation. So come and tear off a piece of bread, take a cup, move back toward your seats, uh, and then I'll come back up in just a minute and we'll finish up. And Father, we thank you for, for your word. We thank you for the story of Esther. Thank you for the way Jesus' life and and ministry seem to unravel so much of what we thought you were like. We thank you, Lord, that you are far better than just a God who is vengeful. We thank you, Lord, that you're more than just an avenger, Lord, that you're a restorer and a healer. We pray that we would find that to be true this morning. In Jesus' name.